We're starting a new series today. It's only going to be about three weeks long, leading up to Resurrection Sunday. About the priesthood of the believer. And the following two Sundays are going to speak of all the privileges that we have as priests because we are in Christ. Now, just to give you a little joke your way, if you don't know this today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a Catholic priest. Does that sound heretical? What does the word Catholic mean? Universal. What's a priest? Do we know? One who brings offerings and gifts to a deity as a means of worship. If you're a believer in Christ, you're part of the church universal, yes? So you don't let the Catholics steal what's really biblical. And if that's the case, you being a believer in Jesus Christ, you and I actually have sacrifices and gifts to offer as acts of worship to be done unto the Lord that he has blessed us to do for his name. Now that's the next two weeks that we're going to be looking at that. But before we step into that world, we need to stop and understand Jesus Christ is a great high priest. Now this subject is vast. And there's no way that I could begin to cover it all in one Sunday. If Tabitha would have left the clocks alone, (laughs) we may have been able to scratch the surface. But as it is, I'm held to my regular time. In chapter 2 of Hebrews... We're going to start in odd places. Honestly, you need to read Hebrews from beginning to end because it's a, it's a logical flow of thought. And what is Hebrews about? Hebrews is about Jewish Christians who are undergoing persecution. And as they're going, undergoing persecution, the reason for their persecution is their devotion to Jesus Christ. And so they start to think. In fact, they make the mistake of thinking for themselves. They start to think independently of what they've learned through sound doctrine. And the idea here is, well, wait a second. If Jesus is the reason why we're getting the snot beat out of us all the time, let's just shrink back from Jesus a little bit and we'll be able to keep our snot. Does that sound like a good exchange? Just let you guys know, it's an hour earlier than it normally is. I'm all kinds of fun this morning, okay? (laughs) Like, I've never heard those things come out of him. Get ready. And so the idea is, well, if we came out of Judaism, and that was a precursor leading up to the Messiah, let's just go back to those things because Judaism is accepted by the Romans and we don't have any problem. This works, right? And the author of Hebrews says, no, it doesn't. Because everything that you would go back to points to the one that you're rejecting. Everything that you're falling away from, everything that you're taking a step back from, is actually the pinnacle of what you're reverting to that it's pointing to. Does that make sense? And so he tells them, if you fall away, and this is is chapter 6, which is a heavily debated chapter. If you fall away, what you'll actually find is you will never be able to regain the intimacy that you once had with him. You're still a child of God? Yes. Still eternally secure? Yes. How? Because everything to do about your security and standing before the Lord has to do with the work of Jesus. 
Not your work or your refusal to work. Not your performance or having no performance. Good works, bad works. That doesn't matter as far as your position. Your position is untouched before the Lord. All because of what he has done. However, if you are experiencing a deepening fellowship experience with Jesus Christ, and you fall away from that, and you revert back to these things, you're capitulating from the faith. You will find that there is no room for repentance for you to experience back to the level of intimacy that you once had with him. And it's a very stern warning to Christians who are thinking about waffling. Not a good move. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to deal with those two things. If you go back to this, Jesus is greater. And if you will stick with Jesus, you will find not just the fellowship intimacy that you have, but that he will reward you greatly for your faithfulness to him. So in chapter 2, picking up in verse 16, and it's a weird place to pick up, but we'll do it. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels. Now, what does that mean? Jesus didn't die for the angels. We talked a few weeks ago in James 2 about demon faith. And people often use, well, if you just, if you just say you believe in Jesus, you're not really saved. Even demons can do that. Jesus didn't die for demons. And Jesus didn't die for angels. He did not give his life to redeem them. But look what it says. But... He gives help to the descendant of Abraham or the seed of Abraham. If you read through Galatians, you'll find one awesome truth. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a child of Abraham because you're a child of faith. That doesn't make the church Israel and Israel the church in no way. Abraham was before Israel was. That's important for us to understand. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren, in all things. That's his incarnation. Why? So that, remember, anytime the New American Standard uses a so that, it's giving you the reason. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. What makes for a merciful and faithful high priest? My headset is on, Mitch, I apologize. What makes for a merciful and faithful high priest is that they understand what it is to struggle. And see, we talk a lot about Jesus as Savior. We talk a lot about him as being part of the Trinity. We talk about him as being the eternal Son of God. We talk about he's a soon coming judge. Sometimes we, I don't know about that. It's kind of. Not used to what the world wants Jesus to be like, but that's how he presents himself. Read Revelation 1, the sash across his chest. It's the raiment of a judge. We love talking about him as king. Why? Because the world's pitiful. And let's be honest, we live in it so long, we get tired. We hate it. It's hard to be faithful. Sometimes you want to smack people upside the head. And that's okay. Our frustrations with sin are obvious. Sad to say, I'm the one I want to smack upside the head the most. Probably you do too. And that's okay. But a subject, an office, a role that is often neglected is his role as priest. Now, if you do a research in the Old Testament, 
Testament, only the high priest was the one who could bring in the offering of atonement on the day of atonement. Everybody remember this? Are we familiar with some of this? And so the idea would be that he not only enters the outer courts of the tabernacle or the temple, but also the inner courts. And he's also able to step in to the Holy of Holies. And in the most holy place where the ark would rest, cherubim have got the wings touching. Everybody, Harrison Ford, Raiders of the Lost Ark, everybody with me? Okay, just making sure. And he would have a hyssop branch. He had to be dressed a certain way, washed a certain way. He'd have a hyssop branch, long branch with leaves on it. He'd dip in lamb's blood that had been sacrificed in the basin. And he would go in, and on the Ark of the Covenant right there is called the mercy seat. That's what the lid is called to the Ark. The Shekinah glory presence of God would be resting above this area, and he's in God's presence, and he would take this spotless lamb's blood, and he would sprinkle it upon this seat, because he's atoning for the sins of the nation. And oh yeah, he has sin as well that has to be dealt with. Jesus Christ is a high priest. But being God, we might sit here and go, man, my thinking of God is that he's detached. Some people believe that he kind of wound up the world like those toys that you get at the dollar store and you kind of let go and they go hopping along. Then they finally run out of gas and fall over. So that's what God did. He created everything, wound it up, and let it go. And what we find out, that's not the God of the Bible whatsoever. He's very intimate. He's very involved. He's personally invested. He cares at every moment, even when we think he doesn't. Even when, I mean, how often do we do this? Well, I'm going to do this sin. It ain't going to hurt nobody. We never say that out loud. But we think about how it's just something that I'm doing. Guess what? God's sitting there taking notes. He knows. He understands our thoughts inside and out. And so there might be a disconnect, especially in the heart of thinking, well, good grief. Could he be personable? Could he understand me? Does he get my struggles? Does he understand that I wrestle with this flesh? I mean, this flesh is really what's dragging me into sin, right? Some of us, our flesh eats at us so bad, if we could skin ourselves, we would. In fact, think about this, guys. Anybody ever notice how alarming it is that suicide rates have gone up since this quarantine time? People don't have hope. People have lost hope. People have rejected hope. Because hope has always been offered. But we either believe it or we don't. Everybody see that? I expected a better response for having hope. Sorry, let me rephrase that. It's an eternal hope. It's an always hope. You guys are sucking up now. All right. So notice, he had to be made like his brethren. What is this? This is the incarnation. This is Jesus becoming like us, taking on flesh. Can you imagine being eternally existent? Then you take on flesh and for the first time feeling the pull towards something that is wrong or that temptation wanted to creep in over you. Think about Cain for a minute. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you and you must rule over it. Man, experiencing that for the first time. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to experience earthly existence like us. Think about this, guys. 
God didn't know what that was like before the incarnation. Thought God knew everything. He knows everything. Does God know what it's like to sin? No, because he's never sinned. So we're not talking about mental. We're talking about an experience. And in the incarnation, he is experiencing a flesh life like you and I are experiencing a flesh life for the first time. These are the links that God is willing to go to in order to make a bridge for you and I to not have to go to the lake of fire. That's a gracious extension. He says here, in all things pertaining to God, why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Why? Because only a high priest can do that. It says here, verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he had has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. See, here's the interesting thing about this. The experience that we think about the temptation in the wilderness with Satan. Everybody remember that one? We think about the opportunities that he had when he was praying in the garden. Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. It was excruciating. I mean, let's be honest. The greatest way that Jesus suffered was he had to deal with the 12 disciples, right? See those guys? You know what's so unnerving about them? They're just like me. And he did it, didn't he? He did it graciously. He did it lovingly. Always teaching. Full of compassion. He's a master at loving people. So notice, by him undergoing temptation and undergoing suffering, why would he suffer when dealing with temptation? You suffer when you deal with temptation because you're not giving way to the temptation. You see what I'm saying? You find out the power of sin when you resolve to resist it because you glorify, think that, understand that, affirm that God's word and what he has had to say about abstaining from those things is greater than whatever pleasures you're trying to be deceived into thinking that temptation will give you if you just entertain it. And so friction happens. The suffering happens. And when Jesus says no to temptation that comes his way, you find that hardships come. Now, if you think that's not a real thing, I encourage you to start researching this cancel culture that's going on right now in our world. Because all it takes is for them to shame you for about three days. That seems to be how long the Hollywood stars can continue in what they say. They shame you for three days, and then you're finally apologizing, repenting in front of everybody. I'm so sorry. Well, I'm going to take time away from what this is because you need to go through some sort of training to get some tolerance. That's our world, guys. That's where we live. So all of a sudden you find I'm not willing to suffer anymore. Instead, let me give in to the temptation and actually say that the wrong was right to begin with. And I'll succumb. I'll fold like a chair. I'll buckle like a belt. No problem. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus would rather die than sin. He understood just how important it was. Now, the incarnation was necessary. Why? So that whatever you and I go through, Jesus is right there with you the entire time. And he's not chastising you. And he's not talking you down. And he's not sitting there in disappointment. And he's not sitting there going, he is encouraging you and he is loving you. And he's sitting there saying, I know. And you know what's great about that? He means it. I know exactly what it's like. 
Look over with me at chapter 4, verse 9. The author of Hebrews moves into a very interesting direction. Because if the people are forsaking fellowship, they're going to miss out on reward and opportunity. They're going to miss out on privilege. It is possible for a Christian to be disobedient and to lose out on experience and ruling and reigning and reward with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the author decides to go Old Testament and describes this as the rest. And he uses the idea of coming into the promised land and the first generation who wouldn't trust the Lord, and therefore they missed that experience and that opportunity. So the second generation learned from that and were faithful and trusted the Lord in the conquest and were able to inherit the land and enter into the rest. Well, he uses that same type of idea here, only spiritually speaking. Look at verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a rest for you and I to enter into. Now watch this. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. God created for six days and then he rested. He was done. The idea is, is that we work diligently for the Lord. We're about good works. We're about choosing righteousness over falsehood, standing for truth and not lies. We're faithful and there will come a day where we can set and we can rest from these things. And this isn't just a, that's over. That is a well done, good and faithful servant. The race was well run, rest. That's what we're talking about here. And so he said, verse 11, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. In other words, the rest is worth the cost. So that, here's the reason, no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And what was that example of disobedience? The first Exodus generation. I'm so overcome with giants in the land, earthly things, that I refuse to trust in the promises that God has given me. Heavenly things, guaranteed, insured, locked up, done deal. And so therefore, it's going to cost me the inheritance. The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't fall into that. Now why? Very interesting direction he takes. Look at verse 12. For, here's your causal conjunction. He's going to explain it. The word of God. Uh-oh, this is fun. This is full of friction. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Shking, shking, shking. Right? It can't just cut you one way, but when it comes back around, it's going to get you there too. Living. Active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul. Your soul is your what? Your suke? Remember? Nobody? Everybody went brain dead since we talked about that. Life. It is able to dissect your life from your spirit. Your spirit being the innermost dwelling where the Holy Spirit resides, which is righteous before the Lord and is your direct connection to God. Your redeemed spirit. It can divide that. It can cut it in half. Picture Ginsu, those guys on the infomercials. <laughs> Nobody? Gosh, man, you guys are still in the early mode. Notice the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. How close are your marrow and your joints? <laughs> right in between them. 
Notice it says, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Save your cab fare. You don't even have to commit the wrong. The word of God already knows it's here. Now, here's what's interesting. A lot of people say, and a lot of people popularly say, well, that's the Bible. That's the Bible getting in there and doing that. And here's one thing I'll tell you. The Bible can do that, but pay attention to what the next verse says. There, oh, Sorry, forgive me. And there is no creature hidden from what? His, everybody see that pronoun? His sight. Who is the word of God? It's Jesus Christ. What is that telling you? It's telling you that Jesus Christ is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow, and he is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And there is no creature that is hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Why? Because every believer in Jesus Christ is accountable to him at the judgment seat of Christ. He is our judge. Now, immediately we sit here and think, okay, I don't like that. Judge makes me feel weird, kind of checking my pulse, licking my finger, holding to the wind. Am I still saved? Man, don't get into that train. You're eternally secure in Christ. But the question is, have you taken him at his word and applied his word to your life so that you're now living and letting him live his life through you? That's the difference. That is a life that will be judged well at the judgment seat of Christ. But I love what the author of Hebrews does here. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a market, great high priest. And why does he bring that up? Since we have the one who has already made atonement for our wrongs, who has passed through the heavens. Now, why is that important? Because everything that was written in the Old Testament about set up the tabernacle this way, set up the temple this way, the priests are to be arraigned in this way. They're to offer sacrifices in this way. That is a second model of what is already a firsthand reality that's going on before God's sight in heaven. And so when we read about the tabernacle and the temple, and we pass by those because they're in the Old Testament, and I don't understand Leviticus, so we're going to move on here. And we do that, what we find is, is that we're actually glossing over a model, a picture of things that are already a reality before his throne. There's a temple in heaven. So when it talks about that he's our great high priest that has already passed through the heavens, where does our great high priest operate at? Tabernacle on earth? Temple on earth? No, he's actually operating in the temple in heaven. He's actually making atonement for us on the mercy seat original in heaven. Now watch this. It's Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Don't waver on your claim on Christ. He doesn't waver on his claim on you. He never falls away from us. He never lets us go. Hold fast to him because in him is privilege. In him is blessing. In him is grace. He says here, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You ever gotten in a place where you're saying, you know what, nobody understands what I'm dealing with? Whether that came from the enemy or your own thinking, it's one thing, it's a lie. Well, no one knows who I feel. Well, no one can understand my struggle. Well, no one can understand the pressure of this situation. 
That is not what the word of God says. Let's read it again. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest, one who stands between us and God, making atonement for our sin, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. See, when we can't deal with the pressures that we have, when we think that we're isolated and alone, and a lot of the friction that we're experiencing with the world, you fall upon Jesus Christ. Because I guarantee you the solution that we're going to bring to the table to alleviate the pressure is going to have one thing going for it. It's sinful. It's going to come against God in some way. We read about Polycarp last week. Just deny Christ, I'll let you go. You don't have to burn to death. That's all you got to do. I recant my relationship with Jesus Christ and walk out the door. Have a great day. Jesus Christ has been tempted in every way as we have, and yet he is without sin. You know what that tells me? When I'm getting all lonely and in my emotions and by myself, I throw myself on him. He can handle it. He understands. Start my prayer like that. Lord, I know. From verse 15, you get it. Nobody else may get it, because let's be honest, we talk to everybody else about the struggles we have before we go to Jesus about it, don't we? And yet, what does this tell us? No, no, no. We have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, tempted in every way as we are, and yet he didn't sin. He handled it better. And if he handled it better, I need to throw myself on his shoulders. I need to wrap my arms around who he is and hold him tightly. There's your rescue. There's your salvation. There's your deliverance out of that problem holding fast to Christ. Verse 16, now watch this. It may sound like the author of Hebrews is coming down on us. He's not. He gives us a really great upswing here. Therefore, now what is that? Therefore, thank you. Six of you got it. That's great. When you see therefore, ask yourself the hermeneutical question. What's that therefore? Because we have such an awesome, sympathetic high priest. Look what it says. Let us draw near with confidence. Some of your translations say boldly. Let us come boldly. I picture it like this. <laughs> right? March right in there. That's what he's telling us. It's not wrong to have your chest puffed out if you're puffed out about the right things. If I'm boasting in the Lord, that's not wrong. Therefore, let us draw near, come closer, get in with him with confidence to the throne of grace. A throne implies he's also a what? A king. Get that. Come confidently to the king who is characterized by grace. What is grace? God's unmerited favor on the infinitely ill deserving. That's what it is. We will never deserve anything he gives our way and he gives it lavishly. Doesn't even take into account whether we deserve it or not. You know why? Because he already knows we don't. That's why. He knows we don't deserve it. We know we don't deserve it. And what does he do? Give, 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 give. Notice, why would we want to come there? Here's why. So that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help in the time of need. If the need is there, come to the throne. You can do that. Well, he would never want to see me. Well, I don't even know that I could pray right now. Well, I'm just, I just feel so distant from God. Cool, you can feel that way all day long. The facts of this chapter say to come to the throne. Come see the king. Come find mercy and receive grace. It will help you in your time of need. It's there. In fact, the word mercy here, come to the mercy seat. Come before the presence of God where your sin has already been dealt with. Trivia question. How many of your future sins have been paid for by Jesus? All of them. So what's keeping you from coming to him every time? Me. You. I'm the only thing that is standing in my way from coming to the Lord. Because the truth has got the door open. The blood of Christ has got the door open. I'm being encouraged to come this way. I'm being directed. It's a beautiful privilege. Moving into verse chapter 5. And it's interesting because I won't get into this, but for you Bible nerds out there, verses 1 through 10 is a really fun chiasm. So if you want to get in there and chiasticize it up, that's great. Do that. It's fun. I'm not going to get into it. I played with chiasms last week. I'm going to spare you today. But it's a fun one. So now he's going to show us two things. What Jewish believers are familiar with is the Arianic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron. But we actually find out that Jesus is a great high priest. He's a superior high priest, but it's not of the line of Aaron. He's going to show us the differences here. For every high priest taken from among men, appointed on behalf of men, and things pertaining to God, in order to offer both, now watch this, here it is. Pay attention to what priests offer. Gifts and sacrifices. You need to mark it. Because this is where we're going to pick up that idea of gifts and sacrifices next week. Priests offer gifts and sacrifices. Gifts are voluntarily given for the worship of the Lord. And we might think of incense offerings, if you're familiar with the Old Testament priesthood. But when we talk about sacrifices, we talk about getting into blood. We talk about blood being shed for atonement in certain situations in order to make the fellowship right again with the Lord. So keep those two things in mind. Put them in the back of your memory banks. So notice, they come with both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now watch this, verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. In other words, the earthly priest from Aaron's line has got his own shortcomings. And so when someone is coming and they're bringing certain items in order to deal with certain sins blood-wise, you don't have a priest that's sitting there judging you going, "Mm -mm mm-mm-mm, you shouldn't have been down there doing that. Not at all. Why? Because he's got sin too. And when you're laying your sin out in front of everybody, not one person is better than another. You know one of the greatest verses we have a problem with in the church? The end of James 5, confess your sins to one another that you may have healing. How many of us really confess our sins with one another? I mean, really just getting it out there. We think about the idea of I've sinned. I'm Old Testament Israel. I need to bring something here to atone for that sin. So there's going to be a sacrifice. That's one thing. Getting alone with somebody over the word of God. And of course, you got to have a cup of coffee in your hand. And you talk about ways that you've struggled or you've wronged your brother or sister in Christ. 
some of the things that we said, some of the things that we thought, some of the things we didn't even do visibly, and yet we're pouring them out. That's the catharsis of the body of Christ. Jesus has made that possible. It's commanded for us to do. The priest has to do it as well. I got to pay for your sins here. Let's get this payment going here. And guess what? I got to come up with a sacrifice for my sins as well. And we've got to get this done so that we can have another year of fellowship with the Lord. Verse 3. And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. Notice the plural. As for the people, so also for himself. Verse 4. And no one takes the honor to himself. In other words, nobody's chomping at the bit to get up there and do this. It says here, but when he is called by God, even as Aaron was, so it's all within Aaron's line. Now you have an interesting switch that takes place. Verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself. Now this is very interesting. Is Jesus Christ a great high priest? How come he didn't try to lay hold of that while he was on earth? I mean, he was in the temple, right? Whip of cords, that had to be an interesting scene right before that all went down. Turning over tables, driving people out, temple police, chief priests, scribes, Pharisees constantly coming to him. Who gives you the right to do this? Looking to arrest him, but they can't. Remember how odd that was? Just can't lay hands on him. Getting out from under him every time. How come he didn't lay, how come he didn't walk in and go, don't you guys know I'm the great high priest? It wasn't time. Let's be honest, does that sound like Jesus? Doesn't sound like him, does it? Very interesting how Jesus didn't boast about who he was in these situations. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, now watch this, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now I want you to pay very close attention to these two words, or sorry, these two lines. Here's the reason why this is important. is because this right here unlocks the prophetic portion that we read in Psalm 110. You are my son. Is Jesus the son of God? Yes, he absolutely is. Is he also God in the flesh? Yes, he absolutely is. And sonship is a place of privilege, right? Romans 8, the creation is eagerly awaiting for the adoption of sons. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. Everybody remember that idea? So sonship is the idea of maturity and completeness of Christian growth for the sake of having extended and awesome privilege in the glorification to come. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Was Jesus Christ created? No, in fact, all things were created through him. He was integral in part of creation. He is the creator. So what does it mean, begotten you? There's a moment in time that this happened. Now watch this. Verse 6, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest, how long? Forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now we're going to deal with Melchizedek in just a second. You're a priest forever. 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 Everybody with me? How was this possible? Did Jesus die? Was he really dead? You sure he wasn't just passed out? Kind of weak? I mean, the cross was a little rough. Exactly. In fact, if you guys remember, his death was authenticated. 
when the soldier went and pierced him with the spear right up underneath the rib cage, he pierced the pericardium, which is a fluidish sac that holds the heart into the heart, and therefore water and blood came out of his side. He was dead. God was dead. But aren't you glad that's not the end of the story? What happened? You guys know? Do I need to tell you? We've got a few Sunday school classes from three years old to sixth grade. It'll tell you this story. He what? No, not just that. Everybody get Bill Gaither on it. Because he lives. You can what? Do you believe that? You should because he's your great high priest. And so when you see this pronunciation here of him, I have begotten you, this is the resurrection from the dead. Why? Because now he can operate as priest. Jesus wasn't operating as a great high priest before this. That's why he wasn't trying to lay hold of that office during his earthly life. Let me ask you a question. As a great high priest that he is, what did he have to sacrifice before the resurrection? Anything? What is the sacrifice? his life. And until he gave his life to atone for the sins of the world, he had nothing to offer as a great high priest. And so what happens is, is he becomes the sacrifice for sin. He dies on the cross. And then God says, I need a priest in order to atone for and apply this sacrifice. And so he raises his son and commissions him now as a great high priest in a different order than what the earthly realm is so that he can walk into the temple of God and atone for the sins of the world on the mercy seat in heaven. That's the difference. He had nothing to offer before that. But once he gave his life, now he has his blood to put on the mercy seat. A perfect offering. Spotless lamb. He says here, verse 7, In the days of his flesh, the incarnation, while he was on earth here bodily, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who's able to save him from death, physical salvation, and he was heard because of his piety. In other words, he was the model of holiness that qualified him as an acceptable candidate for priest. That was part of it. The Levitical priests were set apart. They had to be holy in that way. He modeled that in his earthly life. He says here, although he was a son, even though he was right next to God in the situation, he had that privilege, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. In his earthly life, he understood what it was to have the temptation. Remember what it was. You've been without bread for 40 days. Just turn these rocks into bread. Feed yourself. That'll cure your problem. Put your hands on it and deal with it yourself. Stop trusting God to provide for you. Provide for yourself. I know. Throw yourself off this cliff. Because I know scripture too. They're not going to let your your foot hit. No, I'm not supposed to test the Lord my God. How about this? Here's all the kingdoms of the world. And remember, this is a bona fide offer. Satan is the ruler of this age. So he has all the kingdoms of the world. Bow down before me, I'll give them to you. That's called a shortcut. That's called sinning to get what's going to be yours quickly. And he says, away from me. 
He gets it in the temptation realm. He understands it. He knows what it is to be driven to a point of anxiety about those things. You're not the only one who suffers with that. I'm not the only one who suffers with those things. He gets it. The display of his earthly life shows us that he can identify with us. How did he have to learn obedience? By experience. Verse 9, and having been made perfect, and that word there is teleos, it's the idea of teleo, it's the idea of complete, mature, bringing something to its to its natural head as it's supposed to be, and it's spoken of as us maturing in the faith. Notice what it says here, and having been made perfect, perfect through suffering, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what in the world do we need to understand about this order of Melchizedek? Just like any good preacher, the author of Hebrews goes into a parenthetical section of a parenthetical section. And so we're going to skip that. But we are going to go to chapter 7, verse 1. Go over to chapter 7, verse 1. He is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Look what it says, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, priest of El Elyon, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. What does Melchizedek mean? It means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem. He was the king of Salem, Jeru-Salem. So he's not just king of righteousness. He's king of Salem. Notice how that's translated, which is king of peace. So not only is he a priest, but he's also a king. The amazing thing about Aaron's life is they were all priests, never kings. First king of Israel in fleshly form was Saul. Why not just make whoever the high priest was that year the king? Was never commanded in the law. You couldn't do it that way. So Jesus shows his superiority in coming in this different line as Melchizedek did because he wasn't just a priest of the Most High God. He was also the king over the holy city at that time. Now you can go to the Old Testament and research that. You've got marginal notes. It's all good. Verse 3. It says he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning or of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Here's what that means. We don't have his genealogical records. There's no record like in Luke of Melchizedek's birth. We have the record of Jesus's birth. There's big long lines of, and he came from here and they begot them, begot them, begot them. It's King James's favorite words, begot, begot, begot. You don't have any of that information. In the same way, Jesus Christ is a different type of priest. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, he was made like, now watch this, Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. Notice it doesn't say that Jesus was made like Melchizedek. We would look at this and we say, wait a second, Melchizedek comes up in Genesis, Jesus doesn't show up until Matthew. Who was first in eternity? Jesus. And so notice that Melchizedek is the model of Jesus and the role that he would eventually fulfill. Jesus is the type. Melchizedek is the prototype. But here's what's interesting. He remains a priest perpetually, forever. There is no need for another priest to take a role. Now, why is that? Interesting thing. I have about seven minutes. We're going to hit a lot of scripture. Verse 11. Look at it. Stick with me. 
Now, if perfection, same word that we saw before, it's a derivative of the same word uh, for, for growth, maturity, completion. For if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? In other words, the law was never about being accepted before God. It wasn't you do the law and then you'll go to heaven when you die. That was never the point. Israel was already into a relationship with Yahweh. But if they kept the law, they would cultivate fellowship with him. Why? Because obedience demonstrates their love for their Lord. So notice, if, the, if you're just keeping the law could have made you perfect, there wouldn't be a need for a second priesthood. The problem is, you need a second priesthood. Why? Because not one person can be good enough to experience complete fellowship with the Lord. And that is what God is after. God wants to clear every obstacle out of the way so that you can experience him fully and his son can live his life through you and through me. So how does he deal with this? Verse 12, for when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. Let this be clear. I don't care how many Ten Commandment signs people put out in their front yard. The believer in Christ is not under the law. You have no claim on the law. The law does one thing for us. It tells us we're bad. That's it. You are bad. It wants you to know that you are bad. And that's all. It can convict, but it can't redeem. And that's all it can do. How do we know that? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who, do we know? Believes. Very good. Romans 10.4. He is our righteousness. So there's nothing that needs to be cultivated by, well, I need to obey the law. I just need to keep the law. No, 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 no. This change in priesthood has let you know that the law has changed as well. And that law has passed off the scene. There's something different going on now. Verse 13. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement or fleshly obedience is the idea, but according to the power of an indestructible life. What qualifies someone as a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek, in the order of Melchizedek? You only need one requirement. You got to live forever. That's it. Guess what? That ain't us. We can't fill that role. Jesus Christ is the only one worthy to fill that role. It's about an indestructible life. For it is attested to him, you are a priest, how long? Forever, exactly. According to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and useless. Was the law of God weak? No. What was weak? We were. We could never fulfill it. Why? Because sin wants what sin wants. And we find ourselves constant lawbreakers. So he says here, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. There's that word again. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, there's that word I told you to, to pay attention to, for they indeed became priests without an oath. But he with an oath 
through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest. How long? Forever. There's the oath. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee, the security, the pledge. It's locked and loaded. It's a done deal. He's become the guarantee of a better covenant. And why? Because it's a covenant in his own personal blood. It's not a sacrifice that has to be offered repeatedly and continually. It was offered once for all, and Jesus took his position at the right hand of the Father. It says here, verse 23, the former priests, on the other hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Well, isn't Aaron's priesthood better because there's more priests? No, quantity doesn't mean better. We don't need quantity priests. We need a quality priest. That's the problem. And so it says here, verse 24, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever. And that means from justification to sanctification into glorification, the entire scope of what salvation proper is. Therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you recognize that Jesus Christ is your great high priest and not just paying for your sin with his blood and not just presenting his blood as your payment before the altar in heaven before God Almighty? He's also intimately praying for you. He's also intimately bestowing gifts to you. He is on your behalf in sanctification. It's not just justification. His command to us is never, get your act together. No, that would leave him out of the equation. Our high priest wants to be intimately involved in bringing that salvation to where it should be. And he's removed every obstacle in his person so that we would have full access to God. Now, I want you to think about this real quick because there's all kinds of prescriptions in here and I avoided them purposely. And that wasn't to frustrate you for lack of application. But we have got to get our thinking right about Jesus and his role in relation to us before we ever utilize the gifts that he gives to us in order to display for his glory and his worship. Otherwise, we become about doing and we forget about our being. We start operating in a way of, look at what I can do, look at what I can do. We don't need little stewards. Anybody get that one? Some of them. Okay, good. Look at what I can do. That guy. But... What we're looking for, you didn't get that one. We'll talk about it later. Okay. Got some YouTube in your future. But what we're talking about here is that Jesus is intimately involved because remember, raised Savior, yes, resurrected. For what purpose? Presenting our blood. And then what does he want to do? He wants to live his what? He wants to live his life through you. He wants to live his life through me. He wants us to recognize his superiority. And when he says, come to the throne of grace boldly, why is that? Because the way to the throne is paved in his blood. The curtain is gone. The the, the rending of his flesh on the cross was the rending of the access of God in two. And he invites us to freely come. He gave the sacrifice, he gives the gifts, and he says, come, come, come. What is the problem that plagues us 
and successfully living the Christ life. And yes, we're done with that series, but good grief, we're going to tack it on. What plagues us is our unwillingness to come. Our unwillingness to lay down our arms against God and say, I will not provide my own solutions anymore because the solution has been provided for me. I just need to know what it is and appropriate it. That often has to do with mind renewed with the word of God and trusting the word of God and letting God do all the work. That's it. The priest made that possible. The priest, because he is a priest, set you and I up to be priests as well. Congratulations, rooms full of Catholic priests. You are universally part of the body of Christ. And now because Jesus is the great high priest, you now have the ability to offer gifts and sacrifices for his worship, for his glory alone. That's a position that we're in. We could never be there. We would never think about wanting to be there apart from this high priest, and yet he makes it all possible. Again, that is a really weird, just imagine a little ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. We're leaving that off there because it's not really a way to end this. But next week, we're going to pick up with, now why does that matter and how I serve out my priesthood? Because that's exactly what we are. Jesus is the one who bared the cost and made it all possible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, that our great high priest offers a perfect sacrifice of himself, risen from the dead, full and free. And he has been commissioned a priest forever, and he intercedes for us. He prays on our behalf. He gives gifts to the body for the edification of the body of Christ. And you have called us into this priesthood as well to fulfill those ministerial duties on earth between one another, all for your glory, all for your name. Lord Jesus, we thank you that grace upon grace pours out of the pages of your word. Father, find ill thinking in us. Or we have tried to substitute many other things besides the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would avoid coming to the throne of grace. That is, that is so distorted and with unbelief to where the word of God encourages us to go. We filled our lives with many things, thinking that medicine will make a difference thinking that worldly methods, worldly thinking would make a difference. Worldly stimulants would make a difference. God, there's so many things that are worldly and want our attention. You've called us to a better life, a greater life, a higher life. Father, I need to be convinced of that. We need to be convinced of that. More and more, that your word would just come to the surface of our hearts. The Spirit would convict us in those things, please. And that now would be a time of worship and greatness of our high priest. Confession saying, God, here's where I was wrong, whatever the Holy Spirit brings to the surface. Pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.